Welcome, everyone. This is episode 45 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Hugh Henry. Hugh, where does this afternoon find you? Um, oh, you find me at, at the work site for my, um, uh, my new villa, which I'm hoping to, to open by the end of the year. So you find me in St. Bart's, uh, hot and humid St. Bart's. How is, how is business this time of year? Well, this is the low season. Um, high season in St. Bart's is the Northern Hemisphere winter. Um, the summer is hot and sticky, and the best place in the world to be is the Medita Mediterranean, and supposedly others, but you know the Mediterranean. Um, but um, yeah, the island is kind of. Um, I mean, this this year has been you know dope has been insane. Um, you know, everyone is still trying to get covid out of their system everyone's kind of still feels they they owe themselves a good time and this is this is a good time place well i enjoyed yesterday catching up on your recent podcast with ben hunt and both of you admit to a bit of a pessimism bias i admit to one myself and the pessimism bias is severe enough that in ben hunt's case he's on a farm in the Northeast, and in your case, you're in St. Bart's. Um, does St. Bart's feel independent? Are you are you uh, are you prepared for many future states of the world? I, I committed to here. Um, my my first purchase was at the end of 2012, um, but I I kind of committed a longer term. Um, view of the world starting around about 2015 um you know after the travails of the great financial crisis um having spent kind of two years being a moral uh, uh what would i want to say a cudgelman is that the right word but you know like be um almost being a a minister of the cloth and 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 sending everyone to wishing to send everyone to damnation um i then got very tired by the the helplessness of the situation, uh, something which we see writ large. I'm sure we'll, we we might touch upon it with the the comedy of tragic errors, which is which is Europe and this appalling elite uh, governing class, which is not distinct to Europe. Uh, clearly, it's is it's alive and thriving in in America as well. And I I guess I was somewhat pessimistic in that. I just don't know how you fix it. And if you can't fix it, you've got to kind of push and create a bit of a distance between you and them. And so this beautiful but kind of tiny volcanic island, which is semi-autonomous to the French state, um, and and more than that, which is beautiful, there's a, there's a notion of the, the beauty in nature um, provides, I think the psychological term is soft focus, it provides healing. You know, there's something just nice about music or about seeing beautiful white beaches here. I'm surrounded by a beautiful kind of wild, savage countryside. And it's healing. I mean, I, I, I like to say I kind of, part of me died in active financial combat over the last, the, the, I don't know, the 25 years or so leading up to 2017. Um, I needed healing. And so this has been a source of that. Latterly, I feel a bit like the last Jedi 
uh, on this kind of rocky out outcrop sent to just deliberate. Um, and, and maybe at some point, some, you know, wonderfully inspiring young future Jedi will come and, and, and seek my wisdom and, 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 and invite me back into uh, the, the crazy other world that it would seem that you're in Miami and if you're out there in Vegas and whatever, I guess you're at the, you're at the cockpit. You, you, you see the world um, and all the horrors unfolding every day. I'm in a bubble. In, in terms of your information consumption, are you a podcast person? Are you reading a lot of books there? I'm sure you have interesting guests that pass by. What is your what is your information diet looking like right now? Is a question which fascinates me. I, I read on Kindle, uh, which people take umbrage with, you know, because without a doubt, there's a nobility uh, and the, the the texture and just the kind of kinetic energy from having a book in your hands and, and pages. But the Kindle is a wonderful invention for um, well, reading is a wonderful invention. Um, you can't just be creative. You got to work at it. And one of the, by far the best means of being creative is reading and reading anything, reading romantic novels. I mean, not necessarily, God forbid you're reading economic text and how to make money books. Um, but reading is, um, you're putting yourself into the position of the characters and you're making the decisions of their journey almost before they make them, and then you're critiquing it. But you're kind of, so you're, you're actually using the faculty of your mind, the process of discovery and how you react. And I find that is um, a, of great assistance when I, when I come back and kind of focus on um, things with regard to markets and Fed policies and, and these macro issues about currencies and, and the state of the world. But I read very slowly. Um, and unfortunately, I, I can't do the audio. Uh, audio just sends me asleep. I, I've got a, a great friend who's got a meditation app and he, he was like, oh, it's the best thing. I put it on and I fall asleep. And I was like, how do I, how do I break it to you? That sleeping is is wonderful, but it's not meditation. <laughs> you know, it's something else. Um, so the audio doesn't work for me. Um, I read very slowly, um, but the ability to capture for me, it's um, reading is is conscious REM. It's being alive, and it's it's sub the subconscious processing can actually be resolved as you read. And so for me, it's the the, the importance of highlights and then being being able to the highlights become portable because I find I like to write and I just, I have a sensory perception that a book holds something which is relevant for where I find myself in what I'm writing. And so I can just drop it down, find it, turn it into my words and, and boom, we're, we're off to kind of gonzo finance and we're drinking tequila and we're in the, we're in the tropics sort of thing. But I, I have no Bloomberg. Um, I have no kind of, conscious outreach for financial material and yet i don't know if it's the wi-fi but there's there's just something out there that keeps kind of coming through and getting processed by my mind maybe i'm a shaman you know i just i'm ashamed to say that but maybe i'm a, a shaman of some sort well my recent reads are uh 
have left quite an impression. I, I read Peter Zihan's The End of the World is Just Beginning, and then I also read Matthew Ball's Metaverse. And it's striking because uh, The End of the World is Just Beginning paints a rather bleak picture. It's informed by geopolitics and demographics, and it makes an argument for an end of globalization. It, like you, is very pessimist, very pessimistic on Europe in particular. Um, but it paints a pretty stark picture for 2025 through 2035. And then by contrast, the metaverse is about a, our, our technological future where the, the internet and the metaverse ultimately is becoming a more and more pleasant place to spend time, more and more appealing. And it looks like sci-fi dystopia, right? It looks like we will, uh, we will go that way where the, the world of real things is more and more challenging and the, the virtual world is more and more appealing. I, I also find myself wondering, um, whether part of that is based on the fact that we are a dopamine driven culture and we do like the stimulation of the machines and we don't like the complexity of the real things. And it seems inevitable almost that we'll be spending more and more of our energies in the short attention span, high, high dopamine technology world and less and less confronting real things. And I was also, as I was reading the metaverse, I was thinking about the COVID experience and I was reflecting on like economically in terms of economic policy markets. What, what did we learn from the COVID experience? Well, we learned that um, people actually kind of enjoy being in their bubble and being on the internet and working their brains into a frenzy, right? With with uh, whatever their their dopamine of choice with NF, NFT or stock trading or what have you, right? They they don't they don't really mind that existence so much. Um, and then we learned that fiscal policy was far more important than monetary policy in a way, or at least the, the combination of the two is what's required to get things going really crazy. Um, and I think it's a future, it previews a future where we had the COVID excuse for printing a lot of money and and restructuring the economy. And the experience suggests that we're going to come up with many more excuses to do the same thing. And we're going to get different forms of this of the craziness that we saw in COVID. I wrote a paper in March 2020. So, you know, the emergence, I wrote it in the summer of 2020. Um, entitled the, the 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 dawn of chaos. I, I think we we certainly have um, passed opened a new a new chapter, which 
does um, seem chaotic, less less organized. That in itself is is not good for risk markets. You know, risk markets. Um, we've just perhaps completed 1980 until let's call it COVID was uh, perhaps um, a long, long stretch of time, which was the reimposition of of order. That you know the things that happened, uh, we could look upon it from afar and and judge it to be the right steps. You know, the 70s was very much disorder and chaos. And, and of course, there are many references to the to the 70s um, today. Um, and it will require a retuning of our minds because um, we've had, what, 40 years of being accustomed to a particular metaverse, if you will. And, and I, you know, the metaverse, I got that book. Um, I find it hard to slip inside. I think for me, I, I'm a romantic. I, I need romantic verse. I mean, you, you met, A, you-, you It is very dry. It's dry, yeah. I'm going to push a little bit back on the, uh, the I, I hope I'm not a perpetual pessimist. I, I'm sure I'm not. I mean, I, you know, my next hat is going to say joy is our energy. You know, very much joy is our, our energy. Um, your other book, The End of the World, um, I've, I've had so much um, wisdom the last few weeks listening to U2's Achtung Baby album from uh, a while back. And there's a song there, till, uh, It's the End of the World. You know, I was on Asian CNBC last weekend or whatever, um, and I found myself saying, you know, these markets where my wealth like a see-through dress. I don't know if it's fear or desire. I'm sure complacency could take us higher, but I'm fearful, you know, of what happens next. It, it, for me, I, I need soft, creative. I need music. I run barefoot in this in these beautiful sands here. And I come away and I, and I, I feel enlightened. But but the, the metaverse thing, I think they're on to a winner with that. I mean, I don't, necessarily want to say Facebook and Zuckerberg and, and all of that stuff, but it, it touches on who we are, the the, the, the basic tenants, same with the, the surprise uh, which cuts across social and, and wealth uh, factors is that we all have a profound sense of belonging. You know, podcasts are so successful because too many of us are lonely. You know, we're kind of tapping in um, to someone like to... Uh, to, to friends on Wi-Fi, if you will. And so Metaverse, I think, um, captures that. And I think it also reflects just how unattainable a lot of our life has become. And again, perhaps owing to policy errors or just because life some, sometimes takes a turn for the worse. But um, the major thing that society has to deal with is that in 2009, there was the distinct possibility that equity markets could effectively reprice to zero. You know, in March 2009, Citigroup was trading at nine bucks, which was the same prevailing prices as 1976. So again, back back into the chapter of, of chaos. Um, and nine bucks was an overstatement because it was bust. You know, technically it should have been trading at zero, but nine was, was where we found it. And that's where um, the the policymakers took their stance. And I wouldn't disagree with it. I think if we'd reset to zero, we, we saw that 
in the early 1930s with the bankruptcy of the entire financial system. Um, and so I think wise heads prevailed. But the nasty social aspect of that is that it wasn't the Fed that bailed out the markets. It was the entirety. It was you and me. It was all the citizens of the world. But let's make it US-centric. It was all US citizens. And that meant that you had US citizens that are, I call them the disenfranchised, uh, either a function of, of age or serendipity has meant that they do not own assets. And they were called upon or prevailed upon to bail out the those who do own assets. And here we are so many years later, and that distinction has just become even more stark. And we fear that at some point again, the disenfranchised might be called upon to bail things out again. And I'm not, so if I wish to be pessimistic, I'm not quite sure people will be satisfied or willing to take that same course of action. So um, the future is, is always fraught with uncertainty. But if I put on my, my happy face, um, I am optimistic. You know, the, where we find ourselves, we find ourselves, um, you mentioned COVID and what we learned. We learned the subtleties of language and we learned the subtleties of uh, how much personal freedom we have versus, or we believe we have versus how much we actually have. And, and there was there was language that you could not use on social media platforms. You'd be closed in, you know, you would be subject to retribution. Um, and something like that exists in the economic world, whereby I don't know why, but all the world's principal financial newspapers and other platforms um, are not willing to use this word depression. The depression has been consigned to the past. It's something that you associate with grainy black and white images from a long time ago, almost a hundred years ago. But I tell you, it's, it's, it's here today with us. And just technically, a, a depression is when the economy recovers, but it never quite captures uh, where you would have anticipated growth to be if you had transported, if you transported yourself to the year 2000. And with all of the available information, if you looked ahead and you were to, to, to guess at American GDP today, your figure would be, so US GDP is what, is about uh, $22 trillion, let's say roughly. Um, you would have guessed it to be 27, 28 trillion. That's a huge difference. And that, that's a difference each year. Um, and that's the depression. That's that's the, the wealth. That's the broken dreams. That's the lack of income uplift. That's the difficulty in sending your kids to school. That's the difficulty with healthcare uh, bills, et cetera. And that's a depression. Now, from a positive perspective, we've only had four of these damn things in 200 years. Um, and I am optimistic that again, we will prevail. We will have solutions. The solutions are not, they're not quite available yet. I can kind of guess and push and, and have a sense of them, but I'm, I'm sure we will find a solution. Um, the pessimists will tell you that, you know, this is when Marx has his day, that this is the permanent plateau in prosperity. And, and China's a little bit going that way where it's kind of saying, you know, we've been kind of making the numbers up. Actually, why don't we just say permanent plateau and let's, you know, rip off the, 
you know, the 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 costumes and just reveal ourselves again to be a redistributionist and time will tell. I thought perhaps you were hinting at the recent downtick because I I do think it's an interesting debate. Uh, I think that to one reading, the downtick that we experienced in Q1 and Q2 of 2022 is one of the most intense downticks of all times in real GDP activity. So I could I could see arguments for catering, classifying that as a, a depression. It doesn't show up in employment. It hasn't really showed up in asset prices. Um, but the, the inflation adjusted GDP numbers, the decline that occurred in Q1 and Q2 coming off the very hot 2021 was arguably one of the worst declines of all times. Now it's, it's coming off a very artificial high, uh, but it's, it's very stark. And my case for that basically relies on uh, some of the recent Larry Summers work. He's been doing a deep dive in inflation. He's been writing a lot about it. He's been largely correct in the post-COVID environment. Um, he came out with a paper in April that didn't get a lot of attention, but he said that he said that a lot of the historical thinking about inflation is wrong. And the historical memory is distorted by the fact that the way that we calculate CPI has changed, right? And he, he attempts to rectify this by applying a consistent methodology to CPI and showing what the CPI would be over the past 40 years, 50 years, if you had applied a consistent methodology. There's none of this like John Williams shadow stats, cha let's change dramatically the assumptions of GDP. There's none of this sort of stuff. It's just Larry Summers saying, let's use the exact same methodology and get a data series for the last 50 years. And what's surprising about his data series is that when you, when you calculate the CPI in this way, the changes that we had in Q1 and Q2 were as large as the biggest inflation prints of the late 70s and early 80s, which is shocking, right? Like it's totally shocking because the way most people think about it is they, they just look up historical inflation rates and they just see that the monthly prints in the early 80s and late 70s were still significantly above the nines that we printed uh, in the first half. And so they say, oh, well, at least we're not there. But Summer's, Summer's data suggests we actually are there. Uh, and it it also suggests that the, the real GDP decline that we had in Q1 and Q2 might have been historic. Now, it was coming off a 2021 that was just so obviously unsustainable that it's not even worth reading too much into the decline from those levels, but but it was a a very uh, big negative change in Q Q one and Q two. 
I, I love that you bring that up and let's see we we can kind of push it back and forward uh, between us. I'm not your regular finance guy. You know, I, I, I managed a, a global macro hedge fund for 15 years. If it had distinction, and I don't know if it had distinction, people always want to measure you, you know. We get measured via beauty, via height, via width, via intellect, via numbers, yeah. Um, if there was a number for me, um, I was just odd, right? Yeah, I think we, we we kind of touched upon it. Here I am in this tiny island, and yet somehow via Wi-Fi waves and stuff, um, I want to push back against the great Larry Summers. Uh, I made a career, and and my USP was, I sat there and I said to myself, wow, I've, I've got to do a hedge fund, right? And this was, this is, this is going back um, to 2000 and, 2002. And my competition are the smartest people, some of the smartest people, some of the smartest people in the world. I say that because back then, the remuneration, you're know, the 2% plus the 20% of profits meant that when you were right, you were really right. You know, we've seen over the, again, I think you described the, the economic recovery of, of 21 as being preposterously high. And of course, the, the stock market's reaction was preposterously fantastic. And you had hedge fund managers earning four or five billion dollars, right? So when you have that form of remuneration, it would be logical to assume, not necessarily factual, but logical to assume that they are amongst the smartest people on the planet. So I, I concluded that it would really be not in my best interest to try and outsmart the smartest people. And instead, I try to answer the, the puzzle, why is it? that really, really smart people are, are just not guaranteed to make money in the crazy casino of gambling in, in the stock market and, and other risk markets. So for me, I disdain is too much of a word, but I push against experts, um, Larry being, being one of them. Um, the financial press is you you gotta have credentials to be quoted. People don't come saying, "Hey, well, where's that shaman in in, in Saint Bars?" What what's we're in a time like we're suggesting we're opening up this dawn of chaos. This is a time when you kind of want to speak to the kind of the the more fringe, crazier elements of the community because sometimes they actually have the insight and they can just get a glimpse of what happens next. Now, the astonishing thing about um, the two first quarters of this year is that the economy contracted, yeah, um, and two consecutive quarters of of negative prints is a recession. And up until about three weeks ago, that that wasn't a controversial thing to say, okay. Except the Federal Reserve and Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, had been out saying it's not a recession, and it's like, well. Hold on a second. We had two consecutive negative declines. Okay. Like, no, no, no. Yes, but no, no, no. It's not a recession because, you know, hey, listen, unemployment, it keeps falling. People are spending that, you know, the, the, the summer that was suspended in 21 in Vegas, they're spending now. You know, trust is, it's okay. And so it feels like we live in this world of either imagined imagined or invented realities or become like the metaverse is coming more and more to the fore where the federal reserve i believe largely is the culprit in in all of this um is 
And its special force has been propaganda. You know, it's the Wizard of Oz that if you could actually, there's only five people in the world who understand money. Literally, I mean, all these hedge fund guys, the treasury of the, you know, the you know, all these central bankers, they don't want to, let, let me tell you a story. Back in 2003, I made 50% for my hedge fund. I'm not gloating. There, there were very few years when I made 50, but it was the first year, so it was quite precious. And, and I made it because I was buying gold and I was buying it from central banks, largely the Bank of England. And the Bank of England was staffed by the most profoundly, prestigiously intelligent people on earth, you know, PhDs, etc. And they had well-reasoned logic governing their decision. Me, I'd been to Milan. I bought myself a kind of silver Prada suit. I'd been disc uh, disco dancing in the clubs of Milan. That night when I went to sleep, I dreamt of the Wizard of Oz. And when I woke up the next morning, I just knew I had to buy gold. Okay. And who was right? You see how life kind of sometimes it's the crazier factions, but there is a conceit and an arrogance of a well-formed argument. And that's the trap that you have with, with experts. So again, I've said too much. Looking at policy specifically in the COVID environment, what what do you see as the as the key policy mistakes? If you take us back to your March 2020 article, The Dawn of Chaos, what what do you think we can say with the benefit of retrospect were the major policy errors that that occurred in 2020 and 21? The power of the of the Federal Reserve is rhetoric. That it, that it wants you to believe that it's omnipotent. Um and really since the 1960s, the Federal Reserve has, has had very little power in terms of the plumbing of the credit system. Um, starting as far back as um, the 60s, uh, private commercial banks, not central banks, but private commercial banks, who are actually the only ones who are responsible for money printing, they reorganized their affairs and they created a club-like system called the euro dollar, whereby you could create dollars outside the sphere of America. This was a new thing. And the risk of your counterpart, your counterparties were other banks. And rather than having central bank regulations determining your risk, risk levels, you had your, you had your peers. If your peers, other banks were willing to, to accept your collateral, then you were fine. And so we invented a new form of money, which essentially took the government or the feds out of money. And ever since, the feds just had rhetoric that is like, we got this, we understand it. And it's a litany of errors. Now, specifically to your point, the Federal Reserve, the sin of the Federal Reserve, I believe, was Jay Powell and others going on daytime TV in the summer of 2020 and saying, we, the Federal Reserve, we print money. We print money. Um, now, legally, under the Federal Reserve Act of 1934 or 36, that's illegal. Okay, so they, 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 are, they have no permission to print money. And indeed, they cannot. But in trying to 
influence um, opinion, like, hey, don't worry, we got your back, we're printing money, we got this alien body snatching invasion, we will prevail, okay? We're doing something. They were doing nothing. Now, coming out of that, remember, COVID was analogous to world war, whereby in a world war, you, you, you redirect all the manufacturing and industrial activity, all the shipping lanes, and everything is reorganized for the war effort. And in 2020, 21, and still today in, in 22 in China, it has it was kind of closed down. You know, we said to people, stay at home, you know, this thing's infectious. And so we we for the first time ever, we closed the industrial capacity of the world. Um, and then we reopened it. And we didn't just like reopen because like you gotta be cautious, you gotta give them advanced warning, like you might want to turn the electricity on, you might want to get some cleaning team in, get the dust off the machines, get ready. We didn't do any of that. You, The government, so back to fiscal policy, the government went, hey, here's a check from Uncle Sam. Go and spend money, right? And at that point, you know, the largest component of spending is typically on services, eating out, going to the cinema, getting your hair cut, et cetera. That was all closed. But here's this money, and so you go on Amazon and you buy stuff, and boom, right? The guy who's just kind of opening the, the the shutters and the gates on his factory suddenly he's never been busy, and he's like, oh my god, right? And so you raise prices because so, you know demand's too much, and that's how we work. Like I'm overwhelmed with demand, I'm going to raise my prices to choke it, um, and then you get to Larry going first quarter, second quarter, and then indeed the reality of these prints being enormous, suddenly prices are rising at 9-10%, the fastest rate of price erosion or wealth erosion in 50 years. That's So the error is, the I think the price increases that we're seeing are relative price increases. I think they are explainable by this preposterous situation that I tried to describe. I think we... It has precedent. The same thing happened after the Second World War. U.S. prices were rising at 19% in 1948, 1949. But we don't talk about the great inflation from that period because it was just an initial kind of changing the gears and getting back into it. But back to the Fed, because they were out there go and, you know, liar, liar, pants on fire, we're printing money. Well, you know what? You own the inflation now. It's yours because you just told us you print money and then one year later, prices are, are hitting the roof. You own it, my friend. And so what are they doing? They're raising interest rates. Huh? And they're bringing damnation because, again, it's they're just covering their backs. You know, Uncle Joe Biden is out there going, how am I going to get reelected? What, what are you guys doing? You do something about it. Um, and it's, again, when people, when bureaucrats and those in power just seek to for them to prevail, for them to protect themselves, and they try and bring all, all of the rest of us down, well, I kind of get, I get angry. So that's what I think was the, the errors of, of the last few years. I recently read Trillion Dollar Triage, the Nick Tamaros account of, of COVID era policy, and it was remarkable to me how how manic the March period was in particular. Um, 
I feel like you can you can point to the last week in March as being an unnecessary amount of market intervention. Some of the some of the last things that happened buying of the of the or not so much the reality, but the announcement that they would be buying some junk bond ETFs and some of the uh, last measures after the market had already made a strong recovery seemed excessive. And it was clear that they just had in mind that they were, they were going to do much more than was necessary. And I also think Mnuchin was quite active in, in pushing at that time there were five to 10 calls a day between Powell and Mnuchin. Um, and then I think the next error was, uh, talking in 2021 as if inflation was inconceivable. And I think the, the major error was, if you're looking from the perspective of March one to now, where we've added one and a half trillion or so to the Fed balance sheet, it was evident in March by March one, two thousand twenty-one, that the economy had made a strong recovery, that asset markets were richly valued, and that prices were likely to be going up. So, that time a little bit early should have been the moment to slow down the stimulus. And instead, it was a lot of stimulus and a lot of confident talk until the inflation numbers came hot and heavy. You name-checked another book. And I, I and your credentials are impeccable. You are a well-read host. I, I congratulate you. Um, and, but again, I want to push back and, and, off, and off you. I'm looking at my Kindle on my phone. I'm like, what have I been reading? <laughs> so I, I'm presently reading, I'm reading, um, what is it? The, the Memoirs of an Addicted Brain, which is fantastic, I have to say. I mean, it's, it's really, really good. Um, I always go back and read Ayn Rand. Uh, and Atlas Shrugged is, is with us today. Um, I'm reading a book by, God knows, but the, the Thought of the Heart and the Soul of the World. <laughs> um why is it always about you? I mean, I you know I've got I've got I've got issues. Um, I'm reading the memoirs of Chris Black, Island Records. You know, I discovered Bob Marley, U2, wonderful memoir. Um, I'm reading about Led Zeppelin and Hunter S. Thompson. It I, oh, and and in the last three months, I actually read The Wizard of Oz. So, um, I'll have to take my hat off to to your credentials but the world that, that you describe is understandably given my my source of material not one that i understand so um the federal reserve gunning its balance sheet um additionally in the year 2021 um is irritating because it in 2020 something un we had no record. There, there were no. There's no data points for what for COVID, and um, and 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 how long it could last and how damaging it could be. But one year later, 
we had the measure of it. Again, we had this wonderful, creative, democratic, um, liberal democ social democracy, and it found solutions. It found, you know, it it it, it found um, uh, it found a way out. And so we knew that, that the 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 recession was V, and it would be sharp in the rebound. And yes, there's a complaint that the Federal Reserve, even with that knowledge, prevailed and gunned its balance sheet, I think, by another $2 trillion, so 10% of GDP. Uh, and that feels that feels wrong, except we're talking about laundromat tokens, right? They, they were creating excessive bank reserves. Now, you can't go to Starbucks with a whole swag of banking reserves and say, I swap you this for a coffee. They say, get out of here, you're a joker. Right. OK. The Fed's a joker. Right. They were not printing money. OK. Who prints money? Private sector banks. OK. Let's look at private sector banks. Credit cards. We, we all have credit cards. We all we, we all spend too much on our credit cards in Vegas and St. Boris and elsewhere. Right. Credit card balances are nine percent, nine percent below where they were in 2019. But when you read about well, the Fed's created all of this money, which it hasn't. Right. And when you see these the price of everything exploding, you think, well, wow, there's so much money printing. This is serious. It's an illusion. There are only five people in the world who understand money. and None of them works for the Federal Reserve, certainly. Going forward, do you think that they they have the power to restrain? Right. There's always uh, the difficulty of pushing on a string of stimulating the economy, but pulling, pulling the string we think is something that the Fed can do. Uh, do you, would you agree with the idea that, that the Fed can slow the economy dramatically? And do you think they are going to have the will to do that? The Fed is like an old drunk uncle at a wedding insisting on doing some John Travolta dancing. You, 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 you just wish they weren't doing it, you know? Um, we can function very well, we, the financial markets, and the financial markets acting as either a lubricant or a break on our social democracy, on saying, hey, look, we've gone a little bit too far, or hey, come on, take more, take more, try harder. We can do that without the Federal Reserve. When I look back at Federal Reserve interventions, I just see errors. Um, you know, we're in a depression, I would say to you, because you know the economy peaked in 2007, but you get, you go five years out to 2013, and the Federal Reserve's going, oh, we have a problem. You know, uh, we're worried about inflation. We're going to, you had this thing called a taper tantrum where they started having, having second thoughts about their quantitative easing and that they were going to unwind it. Now, pause for a second, because Adult unemployment was 7.8%. Five years after two, 2000, six years after 2007, the economy had only expanded by about 10%. Now, over six years, it's really nothing. And yet these goons are like, whoa, you know, panic, panic. And the 10-year, the, 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 with their manic personality, they persuaded the markets to push the 10-year rate to 3%. That's an interest rate hike. And guess what? slowed down so they they made an error they, they slowed an economy which was struggling 
and they shouted fire and it was the wrong call. And then they, they said nothing. They did nothing. And then you get to kind of late 2015 and Janet is Federal Reserve ch uh, Chairwoman. And she was kind of cautious, but she's kind of starting again. She actually raises rates, but modestly. And then she gets replaced by Jay. And, and Jay has this, Jay, what, Jay wants to leave his mark. He's envious of Paul Volcker. He's like, damn, that Texan guy, you know, all I read about is Paul Volcker. I'm going to be the next Paul Volcker. And reputations are contextual. And Jay comes in and he starts hiking rates and he's, oh, you know, hell and brimstone. And we got to slow this thing down. What, what have we got to slow down? We've got to slow an economy which should be like $5 trillion greater every, every year than it is. And these Muppets are trying to, what are they trying? When they say slow things down, they're trying to destroy jobs. Okay. So, and, and the stock market falls 20% because the market's like, oh my God, what are you, what are you doing? You know, uh, and at the same time, you know, drilling for energy, like, you know, hydrocarbons, getting them out of the, 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 the earth and the great, uh, the great reserves that reside in North America. It's a risky business and it's funded by um, high yield debt. And when Jay's raising rates and, and, and threatening hell and brimstone, guess what happens to high yield credit? It collapses. You finance the, uh, a fracking uh, operation uh, and you bought the bonds. You know, they trade, probably trade like 97 cents on the dollar. When Jay's finished with you, you're selling them for 27 cents on the dollar. And you fast forward to today, and the and here we are with this profound shortage of energy, and and we got very high prices. And what is the response from North American um, explorers and wildcat and interesting people? They're like, the last thing I'm gonna do is explore and get more precious hydrocarbons out of the earth because. The capital markets will kill me. Why will the capital markets kill me? Because the blinking Federal Reserve every three or four years goes fire, fire, oh, fire. Like I would, the correct response would be to fire the Federal Reserve. Europe, you say, has problems more terminal in in your opinion than the United States. What what is your assessment of of Europe at the moment? Dude, I I was on the. BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, I think in 2010, and the ex-Prime Minister of Denmark, he, he was kind of saying, you, Mr. Hendrik, your days are over. We have you. We're going to take you out. Well, you know, you know, guy's a bum. Okay, guy's an idiot. He's part of the generation that sold, sold the future of Europe, you know, down, down the toilet. You know, As the principal priority for a sovereign nation is to secure energy i mean i i had a croissant this morning hey listen i'm in a it's, a it's a french culture a croissant probably has 300 calories now if you've been on one of those elliptical bike things and you 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 can put a target time or you put put in calories and give yourself like 15 minutes to burn 300 calories yeah i gotta work like crazy yeah to, to create that energy, right? So again, joy is our energy. Energy is profoundly important. It's profoundly important for establishing, establishing sovereignty. And Europe rejected shale exploration. 
Um, it embraced the environmental social governance that, you know, not only were we to be mindful of the planet, but we had to immediately stop all exploitation and, and discovery in, in the European continent. Yeah. And Europe has effectively, it has no indigenous domestic uh, liberty energy, if you will. It is dependent on an energy source that comes from a government that doesn't respect liberty. So the euro presently is trading Hari Pasu with the dollar. Uh, and I would imagine that the euro has to weaken further to reflect its lack of sovereignty. That's the, and, and to put that in stark language, um, you, there's a gas crisis because of, of, of the escalation in, in tragic events with Russia and Ukraine. The, if you put it into price per barrel, because we all know the price of a barrel, well, kind of, we it gets, you see it in the corner of your television when you watch a news channel, and it will say today that um, crude oil is about 90 bucks. Yeah. The, the equivalent price for that gas in Europe today is close to $600, right? That's the problem of Europe. How can you survive at 600 bucks per barrel of oil? And again, it, it throws light on America may have its problems, but it has almost an infinite supply, certainly of natural gas. And it has other issues. Again, back to that social, environmental social governance. The US is just all potential, um, but we're, at, we're in the age of, or the dawn of chaos. I, my principal point back in 2020 was that, you know, we, we can cite Milton Friedman, the noted, esteemed, monetarist economist and he, he made this very um, evident evident after the after the event sort of thing that money is uh, inflation is a monetary event like without money you kind of don't get inflation and i wanted to add on top of that uh, it's also psychological like uh, it's the two factors um moving in, in unison which create the inflation you paul volcker's great achievement was actually psychological think of a bank as a hedge fund, they can either have um, a loan to a mom and pop business, you know, to, to a risky uh, commercial private enterprise in the United States. And think of that as being like a real asset because you can increase the interest rate. And if you have inflation, then your credit risk is less because your, your companies can raise prices or the bank can buy government bonds. And when Volcker came in, um, they were, they didn't want to touch bonds because there was inflation. And Volker came in and, and it's like a poker table. And he sits there and he's like, guys, I'm, I'm calling you. Like, so you own, basically your portfolio is loans to private enterprises in America. And you know, we're in a recession because, you know, the Arab embargo again and the price of oil gone from 10 bucks to 40. And, you know, the last time that happened six years ago, the economy slam dunked into a dungeon of despair. Guess what? I'm going to raise rates. And actually, hold on a second. On a Saturday, he actually went, boom, press the button and he raised rates, not by these 25 basis, you know, today we're the great alarm of 75. On a Saturday morning, he raised ba rates by 100 basis points. He's like, are you listening? And the banks are looking at their, you know, poker and they're looking at their, their deck and they're like, 
you're bluffing. So he did it again. And he did it again. And the banks went, holy Moses, this guy is bonkers. And we we better sell these things and 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 move the other way. And that created the legend of Volcker is psychology. The Fed does not do money. It does psychology. Okay. During the depths of COVID, they were buying $80 billion of treasuries a day. Uh, they do have that power, right? To, to print some money and have the, the bank of New York, the, the federal reserve branch in New York buy a lot of treasuries like that. It does seem like they have the, the power to, at least in the short term, have some sharp market impacts. It would be a sharp market impact. So the role of a central bank historically goes back to this definition from a Victorian British uh, economist, Walter Bacot, and it's to be the lender of last resort, you know, to buy the stuff that no one else is willing to do. You know, JP Morgan did it in what, 1907 or whatever, you know, before uh, the US had a federal reserve. Um, so my pushback on that statement is since 2008, or since March 2009 and the advent of quantitative easing, which is largely buying US Treasury bonds, the Federal Reserve has been in competition with every other major financial savings institution in buying government bonds. They're buying the same thing. In fact, there was meetings from a Federal Reserve meeting about eight years ago saying, we're meant... We're going to buy the stuff that no one wants to buy. Why are we buying what everyone wants to buy? So again, let me try and put that in psychological context. Um, the banks messed up horribly in 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007. And why did they mess up? They messed up owing to the arrogance and the conceit of a well-formed argument. It was a great argument. Lend money to mortgages. And then package them, take a mortgage from each district of the United States, each state of the United States, and then sell it on. And impeccable logic, because up until that point, we had never, in the continent of the United States, we had never seen a unified price decline across every state at the same moment in time. Never happened. The US is magnificently diversified via resources and intellect and culture and everything else. Okay. That was... The conceit and the arrogance of a, a very well-formed argument, um, except the argument <laughs> failed because prices fell across every state. And owing to that, like I say, Citigroup in March 2009 was trading at nine, but really it should be trading at zero because it was bankrupt. Um, and banks are like elephants. They've got long memories. They're like, we ain't doing that crazy shit again, you know? And Banks have just not been extending credit. Banks are terrified. The last thing they want to do, if you're Johnson & Johnson, if you are Apple, no problem. You want a trillion dollars? I'll wire, I'll wire it this morning, okay? But, you know, if it's Hugh and St. Bars and I'm thinking about building another property, like, get out of here. Go away. Ask someone else, okay? So, but they have to do something. Remember, they can either make loans or they can buy government bonds. And for 15 years, they're desperate to buy government bonds. And the, the, the Fed minutes, one of the, the Fed presidents went, why are we buying what everyone else wants to buy? 
Do you have that answer? I don't, but I think that the Fed has to be doing a lot of the buying because the supply is determined by Congress essentially running large deficits and the banking system does not have the ability to over long periods of time take on all that debt. Over short periods of time, it can, but over the long periods of time, it doesn't work. The treasury market doesn't function if the Fed's not doing a lot of the buying. It, I think it did function pre-financial crisis because the patchwork of our international trading and financial system it seemed unsustainable, but it was working for a while to have the partners that ran big surpluses against us take take on most of the debt. Um, and then that has broken down in the past decade or so. And so I, I don't see an alternative to having the Fed take most of it on. Pushing the private sector, they like, go away. We want to buy this. And the private banks are like, no, go away. We want to buy it. Stop. You're, you keep pushing the price up. Go away. It's the crazy uncle dancing drunk at the wedding party. No. You hit again against another, and, and again, it's why I push back on Larry Summers. Um, tenured professorship is so damn hard to penalize experts. Well, there's no penalty when they're wrong. They, they, they last forever. They, they, it's perpetual tenure. Okay. Whereas for me, you know, if I was wrong, I'd get fired. You take your money out, boom, go away. You're a joker. You know, so I've had that kind of dagger pointed at me where's that dagger today you know i've got about you know you probably think i'm super rich hedge fund manager i've got a ton of debt locked in at two percent 20 years um fixed and i'm yeah i'm building these i'm basically st bar's property is like bitcoin you know um the building regulations it's, it's effectively like halving like the supply is being reduced every year but and, and every year some new Tom, Dick, and Harry's becoming rich, and they want to come to a place like St. Bars and Peacock and say, hey, look at me. I've had a good year. So that's, you know, that's my sharp pencil is, is dealing with the dead. Now, you, you hit upon another source of propaganda, uh, which is the real culprit of where we are and how we could change things, I believe. And it's this notion of uh, somehow China back 10 years ago, kind of helping the home team and buying treasuries. Okay. That ain't, and, and you do correctly note that over the past eight years or so, their absolute holdings, and we have to guess because they hide it, but we, we can guess their absolute holdings of US treasuries have declined. And, and so again, with rhetoric, you could say, wow, you know, because we're out of control and they're getting a little bit concerned and now we've got inflation. These are, they're Chinese, they're smart, you know. BS, complete BS, right? Um, this is the, the true thing. And, and Larry's wrong. Inflation in America, if, take any starting point, but you know, 1980 would be obviously very favorable, but go, go before 1980. Inflation in every category where the government is not involved has consistently fallen and fallen dramatically. Okay. That's just a fact. Okay. And it's a fact, not because of Volcker, but it's a fact because of what I want to call a trade war 
which is a class war which is camouflaged as a trade war. That for noble reasons, America and the West, but principally led by the United States, accepted that we had to do something about the Chinese. There's a lot of them. They're a bit cranky. They're prone to communism. They're, they're prone to purging their population. They're, they, they just seem to extol in bad things. And um, what if we could engage with them commercially? What if we could make them richer? For sure, at the beginning, it would be tough on us because our unskilled labour pool would be affected by bringing on 1.4 billion Chinese peasants. That, and that's the class warfare, that wages would come down. And that's why inflation across all tradable goods sectors has, has just universally fallen, except in those areas like education, healthcare, and, and even stock markets where the government you know, uh, fingerprint is all, is all over it. 30 years of trade class warfare, where if you're not rich, you just got poorer and poorer and poorer. And now you've got the blinking Federal Reserve hiking rates because of its silly rhetoric in 2020. And, and incorrectly, in my opinion, um, not recognizing that these high relative prices, they're not inflation. Inflation is a monetary phenomenon and credit card balances are 9% below where they were in 2019. And if, if I was to give you the whole, the whole gamut of financial data, you would see the last thing banks want to do is print money. So who's suffering? Right, I'm in St. Bars. When my clients arrive, okay, it's 90 degrees, it's 75% humidity. What are the two complaints? The air conditioning is not cool enough, which is bogus. You know, the rooms get cool to 17 degrees. And then they step out and the swimming pool is not hot enough, which is bogus because I've got the heating jacked up. Okay, so clearly the rich are unaffected and clearly their asset prices are high. Okay, whereas in the real world, Everyone's been told, hey, what do you do? Do you drive less? Do you trade down at the supermarket? Do you, do, you, do you give up on all luxuries? Walmart's the only answer. Do you give up on Netflix? It's two different worlds. People are getting damn angry, quite rightly so. And, and the political universe presently is not offering solutions. I mean, Trump was a reflection of the anger, but not a solution. And the question is, well, what's the next attempt? Because there will be another attempt. We agree on that. Uh, politics always trumps the economics, and it seems it seems like the politics are in line to be powerful. Um, I think we'll likely lurch back and forth, left and right, and probably have some some extreme policy coming our way in the next in the next decade or so. And right now, uh, it's been a news news heavy cycle with Trump and all of that. And I, I I thought it was quite predictable that there would be a takedown, and he uh, would not survive reputationally to run again. It seems like that will be the case. Uh, he's going to probably enter a painful period of depositions and discovery and all of that that almost can't go well but his secret sauce is the trade class warfare and this blind bat that we call the federal reserve flapping around 
and, and trying to control the world by making the constituency of Trump voters, making their life even more mis miserable. And no one gets it. You know, um, I, this is why one of my favorite investment books is Albert Camus, L'Etranger, the, the, the Stranger. Uh, God is dead. Sorry. I know, I know like you Americans have a hang up on that, but you know, the big man, you know, he's dead. There are no rules and you're on your own. Like get angry. Like I, I wear another hat that says, I recommend you panic. That think of the conditioning. They will not allow us to use the word de uh, depression. There are no jacking up this nonsense that we've got out of control inflation when the banks are not really lending money. Okay. Um, they're denying two consecutive quarters is the recession. I mean, you know, incredible. And their buddies in the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times are saying, yeah, well, you know, they, 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 they raise a good point. What point? You know, it's nonsense. So, and when, you know, you'll be closer to it than I, but when you look ahead, I mean, I don't see anyone. I don't see, I, I don't see truth tellers. I, the problem is, you know, I'm presenting Jesus and everyone's denying God. You know, like you don't want to hear, you only get some sense of another imagined reality by tuning in to some bloke in St. Bart's who's building villas. I, I'm charging 60,000 bucks low season for a week and people can't afford to put $60 of gas in their tank. And yet I, I actually know the solutions. I, I would put a withholding tax. Like, so you're fearful that the Chinese ain't going to buy those US government bonds. Baloney. Baloney. In fact, I would charge them a damn rent. I would say, you want to you, you pimp a ride on our majestic system? I'm going to charge you. I'm going to charge you 3% a year. Okay? I tell you, they will not sell. If Because you think of what, what is their option? What, is it, what are their options? They sell. They say, in disgust, you Americans, you break all the rules. You know, we're going to take down Taiwan sort of thing. Right. Uh, um, so they sell them. What do they do? They put them, they park them in Remimbi. The Remimbi goes to, to my level, four and a half. N not going to happen. That, they, that's their number one priority is not to allow that to happen. So charge them. Let's get politicians that actually, un that's a hard thing, that understand money, that they're being actually well advised. They can they say to their constituency, let's stop the class warfare. Let's stop the warfare on your communities. Like that, like that, we can do it. The withholding tax. And then we're going to raise a lot of money. And what we're going to do is we're going to create a sovereign wealth fund. Not for everyone. We're going to create a sovereign wealth fund for the disenfranchised members of our community. If you don't own assets in America today, quite frankly, that's a, that's a crime on us. And we will be called upon to bail out the asset holders at some point. You know, if the S&P loses 25% from today's level, Federal Reserve will try and cut the rhetoric and, and will intervene in markets. Okay. At that point, you use the sovereign wealth fund, you buy assets, and those, and you're buying those assets for an account, which is for all the folk that are disenfranchised. And so suddenly everyone is together rather than this kind of fracturing of society where I hate you, you hate me. I'm wondering what Euro breakup looks like if it ever comes to that. We're we're in a summer where Italy is probably as fashionable as it's ever been, right? It's 
all over Instagram, right? Like I can't imagine what the rates are. It's as fashionable as ever. It could survive on tourism alone, on lifestyle, right? Uh, does there ever come a day or are we, are we close to a day where Italy or Spain or Greece or some combination says we're, we're better off going it alone, doing it the old way? And what, is that, what does that look like? It's it's not Italy or Spain saying we're better off doing it another way. It's 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 you know it's the Northern Protestants saying it wasn't it for me. You know it's the it's the return of the prodigal son. You know the the the, the elders or the elder the younger son's been plowing diligently, doing all the sensible things, and you know the the the, the young crazy one went went to Vegas, went crazy on the white powder, <laughs> spent it all. And now he's back and his father's hugging him. He's like, oh, welcome back. And the older brother's like, I feel like an idiot, right? And and so that's not there yet, but there's been a pivot this summer so that the higher rates um, have got in the way of the European Central Bank. So Italy has a lot of debt. And if you can control how much interest, if you pay nothing on the in- on the interest, then there's no limit on the amount of debt you can have outstanding. In theory, yeah, which is the kind of European quantitative easing program. You know, they have a lot of debt. We pray at some point they wisen up. They kind of do more sensible things with their, essentially with their political culture. We hope so. And in the meantime, we're going to just take the pressure out of the system by keeping interest rates very low. And then you have, obviously, starting this year, you've had this huge surge in, in, in commodity and energy prices. Um, and you've had a fracturing in interest rates. You know, it's like you, tr- you, you get one leak, you put your hand on it, and then you get, oh, my God, there's another leak. And I, you know, uh, but the leaks are Italy. And so they've they've said, hey, listen, we're going to, like the Fed, we're worried about inflation because we're blind, because we're not one of the five people that understands money. We're going int- to increase interest rates, and we're going to stop buying government bonds. We promise, except we're, we're going to keep buying Italian government bonds. So la, la dolce vita, you know, it, it like the summer is wonderful in the Mediterranean. Like you say, Instagram is, is replete with wonderful images. Um, and everyone else is getting interest rates jacked up. They're no longer buying their government bonds. And everyone else's life is misery with these energy prices. Remember, 600 bucks per barrel of oil equivalent. But the Italians have got to pass. And then to confuse matters even further... They've just kicked out Mario Draghi. Now, Mario Draghi is this technocrat who ran the European Central Bank. Um, he's got he's got a following in the financial markets, and he he'd become uh, the political leader. And he he was running the government in Italy, and he's been turfed out. So what happens now if, if they bring another bozo in, who, who just why not ride the system? Just wow, well, that's what Italians. I mean, I don't wish to be. Uh, uh, a, a cultural stereotype, but you know, like, there's a kind of, you know, screw it, like, use the system to your advantage until the system rejects you. So um, it's, it's, it's plausible. And, and again, the, it, the dawn of chaos is, is psychology and it's anger and anger is, is building and it's building owing to the desperate nature of these um, price increases for items that we call non-discretionary. You have no choice. You, 
you got to feed your kids. You got to heat your your house. You got to drive your car. You got to get to work, and it's leaving you with nothing. So, um, not today, but it become again. It's well, if that has more and more credence, then you see the 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 euro breaking the buck. You know, you see it trading below pari passu at, at a dollar. That that's telling you where we're sliding to, and so I wouldn't. I would stand against the argument of like the euro trading in the eighties uh, versus the the dollar. When you say you would stand against it, you would. I wouldn't stand against. It. I, I could see that happen. I, I see. I, I see that. Yeah. Thank you for the clarification. Yeah. My last question: um, Your interest going forward, aside from Saint Bart's life you've hinted at the idea that you would like to engage in money management. Um, you also are more engaged in the content space than ever before. I've noticed your Twitter follower account has ramped quite impressively. Um, you're more active on the podcast. Looks like a couple times a week started with Substack. Um, what, what do you see for the next couple of years and where can people find you on the content space i'm fed up with the experts we're running out of time our society's getting angry and that's why you'll find me on hendry underscore hugh um, on twitter and that's why we're putting out this acid capitalist um, the life is life is so bad I, I i need hallucinogenic agents to keep out the gray um and it's you know it's funny the 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 audience project they project on, I'm sure you, you get this. And wise man told me, you know, listen to the projection. Don't fight it, you know. And people are miserable. People are lonely and they're miserable. And so the whole acid uh, capitalist thing uh, has taken stock. But I do a weekly podcast that we publish on um, the Asset Capitalist Show on, on the, the wonderful Apple podcast platform. I mean, the Apple is the S&P. Spotify maybe is the NASDAQ. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et with all the others, um, we also put it out on on YouTube under Hugh Hendry uh, official. And what we're trying to do there is, I get to meet with amazing, inquisitive, fantastically insightful people. That's that that's called the world of being a hedge fund. But you never get invited. You know the whole head, the whole financial community is heads. I win, tails. I win. You remind me who you are again oh you're the guy that's paying the bills you you're the last person i think of and so we do this weekly podcast we say hey come in you know sit you know for the moment listen and then like hit us with questions and we'll come back to you so um we're going to get out of this depression we've got to better inform people and I may be on a volcanic island, but with the wonders of the WWW, we can spread a message that let's get angry and let's change the system for the better. That's that's what I'm doing. I thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. Hopefully we'll we'll do it again at some point in the future and uh, maybe I'll have a good year and come down to St. Bart's. You're not far away and you'll always be welcome. <laughs>